song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. And I am a man of infinite jest. Ah, uh, no, you're Mark Masick, but that was close. Mark Masick. <laughs> not 10 jests. Not 20 jests. Not 100 jests. We're not talking about 1,000 jests. Woo! I'm a man of infinite jest. <laughs> and soon, by the end of this podcast, you will know me well. <laughs> um, exciting episode today. Uh... I was going to say, some would say an infinitely gestive episode, but I realized gestive isn't a word. So let's just move on. Uh, There's going to be so many jests on this episode. Andy <laughs> and I talked last week about uh, WWE Network. And when I thought of the WWE Network and what episode we would do, this is, uh, you know, part of the fun planning process. I instantly thought of the book Infinite Jest. Uh, which is written by David Foster Wallace, who we'll be talking about as well. But uh, the reason that it made me think of it is the idea of the teleputer, which in the in the story is a device that essentially is what we now would use like an Apple TV for. That's essentially what it is, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like we could say that he invented Netflix, but I want to say like before... I came up with the idea of a streaming service when I was like 11 years old and I got like the first Simpsons on DVD. Like they released like seasons one and two during like season eight. And I, or I didn't know the season, the Simpsons were going to run this long, but I knew the (laughs) Simpsons were going to run for a while. And I'm like, there's no way that anyone could be expected to buy every DVD of the Simpsons. So I came up with this, like, and it would be a separate TV, almost a teleputer. I didn't read Infinite Jest when I was 12. I was like 13 when I read (laughs) Infinite Jest. So I came up with this before that. And I was like, (laughs) <laughs> I had this teleputer idea that you would buy this thing that could preloaded with every Simpsons episode. And now we have it, but the Simpsons aren't on Netflix. So my dream hasn't been realized. But I mean, Infinite Jest was out before yeah, that. So. I guess I guess it was a parallel idea. It was a parallel or Yeah, like uh, Dante's Inferno and uh, Volcano. Yeah. Dante's Peak and Volcano. Yeah, of course. I, I, everybody knew what you meant. Don't worry, buddy. Uh, Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, the teleputer, I think, and the idea of Infinite Jest is a video essentially that plays on the teleputer more or less. Uh, immediately turns the viewer into like a uh, drooling mess uh, who can do nothing else other than watch. They are like physically, emotionally, every sense of the word compelled to watch this thing. And uh, that's kind of how I feel about the WWE network. The, the really uh, fantastic element of that is this, that, that the teleputer shows this entertainment that is so good that it, it renders people like that, isn't it? And the WWE network doesn't do that. Nothing on Netflix does it. I'm bored all the time. I've, I've every, uh, every piece of entertainment at my fingertips now. And I still just want to go outside and go for a walk. I mean, obviously you Netflix and chill. I think that's clear. Not here. Well, yeah, well, don't matter what or what the entertainment is in that point, am I right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Speaking uh, of David Foster Wallace, problematic. <laughs> but I think throughout the book and throughout David Foster Wallace's writing in general, he has kind of a fear of the narrative narrativization of everything. Uh, in particular, uh, he has that essay on television, and he talks about the ways in which it's constructed this reality of it's the way that writers people watch. And because that's the way that writer uh, people 
writers people watch it's now become the way that stories are told in general and to me and this is something we talked about in the the wwe network episode uh they have this is what you have when you create your goal is to just create content and not actually tell meaningful stories. And I think that's definitely something that's happened with the WWE network and the way that their media portfolio works now is they're just kind of trying to constantly produce content. Well, you watch camp, you watch camp WWE. Stone Cold is like the, like the like badass camper always interfering with Vince McMahon, but like Stone Cold and Seth Rollins are like campers at the same time. And I like it because you never really got to see them at their peak together. That's kind of the appeal of Camp WWE to me. I think David Foster Wallace would agree if he were here. I, I think Camp WWE is actually a good example of what I'm talking about, which is this idea that they are literally, and, and what you said essentially is they are mashing together things I like and just pushing them out for me to consume. And I think ultimately the goal for the WWE Network, I believe, would be for people to watch something that watch things on the network that are so compelling that they will just keep paying into perpetuity. But even more so, I think it changes the way that we interact with the people on the screen. We're watching, they become like, we accept their characters for who they are. And I think that's something that happens actually in infinite jest with the uh, guy that becomes president who uh, is actually kind of like a, not to get too Trumpy, but is a, oh, yeah. is a Trump analog and he's a famous guy. I was just thinking that, yeah. And he was an actor, right? Yeah, he's an actor. He's like a television show host and he's a neat freak and his entire thing is getting the garbage out of America in a literal sense. And to me, that's kind of like, and you see, like I said, with Trump, but you also see it, I think, with this like total divas creates this universe where you know Naomi as uh, Trinity, right? Trinity, yeah. Trinity, um, Nicole, uh, TJ, um, Natty. But Natty goes by Natty on TV now. John. That's what uh, Jimmy Uso is called, John. Yeah, there's this whole... Uh, but you know those characters on that show who then play other characters in a different show. And I... That, to me, I think is what happens and what kind of David uh, Foster Wallace and an Infinite Jest were trying to get at is this idea of the ways in which access, constant access to something creates uh, like a, a bend in the way you interpret it because you can go back and kind of get whatever you want from like you can go back and watch any raw you want right so if you're just like i want to see stone cold kick ass yeah and you go back and you watch it you have this feeling about the attitude era that is really positive right you go this is fucking awesome but then when you watch that whole episode you realize like no there's a bunch of really stupid shit there's a bunch of really bad shit but since you're able to go back anytime you want and watch the specific stuff you like, it like warps in a way the the attitude you have towards it. Is that something you think is like healthy? Well, let, yeah. Let me let me tell you something I did recently that seems kind of infinite jesty. I don't know. Like so, I went back and watched a, a few of the Raws leading up to it, and then the pay per view when Owen Hart died because I wanted to. I wanted to see how the network handled it. I think they just cut it out completely or I zoned out when the guy died. 
but I don't remember that ever happening. Um, and that seems like the kind of thing that Wallace would be interested in, me using the streaming service to go back and watch this death that I, I did watch live scrambling on Channel 68. Like I, I never ordered a pay-per-view. I would watch them on the scramble. It was porn otherwise. Oh, no, porn would be 68 and 69. It was a Channel 67. You could watch Scramble WWE, and I would listen to it. And I heard JR saying, like, folks, this is really serious. This is real. This is not part of the show. So I was, I was compelled to go back and – and watched it because I remember the angle too with Jeff Jarrett and stuff, and he was the Blue Blazer, and I wanted to relive the last moments of Owen Hart's life, and then see if I could see on the pay per view. But I think they cut it out. Um, they they never showed it because I was watching that pay per view live on like actual pay per view. They never showed it because it happened during his entrance or whatever. It happened during his entrance, and they were supposed to cut to him, and he had fallen already, so they didn't cut to him. But like, if you were in the arena, you saw it. If this were now, they wouldn't do anything like that. But if it were now, everybody would have seen it because someone would have had it on uh, camera phone. Uh... But no one obviously had camera phones, and nobody like brought camcorders to a wrestling show. So there is a tape from what I understand that has it uh, that is says do not uh, uh, never view or destroy or something like that. It's very like, Oh, it's very much like the entertainment, right? Yeah. It, you are compelled because you under, I mean, in the instance of the entertainment, viewing it is what entrances you into watching it where this one, you're kind of led by the siren song of getting to see something that will like may fundamentally change the way you think about life. Basically. Like it's this really existential idea of being able to access stories of any kind, anytime you want that, like, do I even have to live a real life or can I just watch stories of people living real lives on television? And like the WWE network, like literally lets you do that. And they indulge it in explicit ways. This idea of creating this universe that you step into that exists out, both inside and outside of time and space. Like it's its own universe, pocket universe within the larger world we're living in. And I think that's kind of what streaming services do. They create this like ecosystem of content that you devour that changes, like, again, it bends the way that you interpret the world. Like watching a bunch of How I Met Your Mothers in a row would like might change the way you think about relationships for a little while. And you may be disabused of that ocean by, you know, existing in the real world, but like television shows and, and wrestling and all of this stuff changes the way you think about and interpret the world because you've, especially our generation and, and the past couple of generations, I guess in general, oh wait, every generation now that I think about it, uh, there's this idea of learning the world through stories. And if, one company has control, and I think this is kind of what you were saying. Uh, if one company has control and they can create their own history, like what does that mean about the things we experienced and going forward, how other people are experiencing them? Like, do we live in two different universes? Yeah, well, we, there's a, there's a the universe that like Einstein identified, and then there's the WWE universe, baby. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> That was... No, but you are in a different universe. Like when I was watching Camp WWE, I was playing pranks on my boss every day, calling him, thinking he was Mr. McMahon. I was like wishing I was at camp with the young Bella twins and stuff. And and then when you try to talk around the water cooler and everyone's watching Fleabag and, and uh, Game of Thrones and, and sports and like you're like, oh, you watch Camp WWE? And no one does. You're in your, 
if you are in a WWE network rabbit hole, you do not exist in the, in the same world as everyone else because most people are watching normal stuff. Or I guess everyone's in their own universe, actually, I should say. Camp WWE represents uh, both the, like, crassness, and that might not be the right word, but the, like, simplicity of the formula of just attaching names and, like, basic ideas to people and then having that be a character instead of, like, a fully formed person and then making it a cartoon makes it okay in a way that, like, I think it would be a lot worse if they had kids pretending to be the older, the the wrestlers. But it's also a thing for me, at least, where it allows them to build this, like, narrative around themselves that they're, like, willing to make fun of themselves. And I think that's just something rich people do to get away with terrible shit. Yeah, I'm surprised they are cool with it because they really do make fun of themselves. And Vince, make you know, Vince is always getting one put over on him. Like Stone Cold is always pranking him and stuff. I'm I'm kind of surprised Vince, but maybe Vince has nothing to do with the content. Oh, he does the voice though. I think doesn't he, he does. Most of them don't, but I think maybe like the older guys do, like Flair and and Vince and Sergeant Slaughter, like the counselors. I'm honestly not sure. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the case, or at least it was, and. And I think the uh, one of the other interesting things about Camp WWE is it kind of establishes a hierarchy of who, uh, as Mark Maron would say, like, who your guys are, right? Like, uh, it says, like, oh, these are the cool kids and these are the dorks. And it's, like, it plays with it a little bit because, like, The Undertaker's kind of a weirdo, but, like... Yeah, he's a goth. <laughs> yeah. But in real life, he's, like, a god backstage, basically. And I... But you also have... Um, you can see the ways in which that having those characters be prominent, uh, prominent parts of a new show, presumably, uh, I guess it's a, it's an adult cartoon, but it's, it's tart. I don't know. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think it's not a kid's cartoon. In other words, it's not like, um, sla- even like slam city or whatever, the, the acclamation thing they did. Uh, uh-huh. where that's just like straight cartoon kid stuff, right? Like this is like at least like Cartoon Network Ed Ed and Eddie level humor. It's very Ed Ed and yeah. Eddie, yeah. It's definitely like that that Cartoon Network launch of like Ed Ed and Eddie and Johnny Bravo kind of humor. And it's one of the so it's like an entry point for people who are just getting into wrestling, like younger kids who might find that kind of stuff funny it's it's like a a, obviously this is not the same thing but a much tamer like big mouth uh yeah it reminds me of big mouth a lot without the uh the yeah much tamer yeah but it's it's kind of playing off of the those ideas about um not with big mouth but in this context it's like i said establishing a hierarchy and it's developing these like loyalties for the next generation of people um to like emulate and i think that's perhaps if you were to not read a single thing that david foster wallace has ever written you would still have read a bunch of shit that david foster wallace basically wrote because of his wild uh following is that uh i think that's the nicest way to put it the like cult around him is very strong and i think that's because Uh, In a way that not many writers do, he has his own 
style that it both feels like anyone can do and only he specifically can do. Yeah, I buy that. I buy that. Has that been, been that your experience with him? Um, yeah, I think people definitely try to emulate it. Um, some people with varying degrees of success, I think, but he's definitely, I mean, why would you want to emulate him? Like, that's what I don't get, you know, like he was self-consciously difficult to read. And I don't know, I don't in the internet, how could he survive in the internet world? Who would have the time to read David Foster Wallace in the world that David Foster Wallace imagined? It's <laughs> a really good point. Um, but I think that's something you see a lot in wrestling too, is these, these guys, these generational guys that, everyone ends up emulating even if they can't quite get to so for instance everybody tried to be the rock for a really long time right it's it was oh we're gonna do catchphrases and we're gonna be big bombastic and what you have to realize is that the rock is so charismatic he's now the world's biggest movie star right like he is presidential candidate level of charismatic and John Cena is a charismatic guy. He's not anywhere close, which is why once they moved him away from the like the jock trying to make other people look like dorks and to like an actual veteran who's like trying to win wrestling matches, people embraced him. Even if he hadn't changed his character that much, it was just how they were presented because they saw The Rock do The Rock. They didn't want to then see John Cena do like a shitty version of The Rock. And that's, that's definitely something you see. Dean Ambrose is actually an example of somebody who kind of transcended being like a stone cold type. They very much tried to posit him as this like goofy version of stone cold, like the stone cold who uh, became a heel and became friends with Vince, like that kind of heel version of stone cold. But he very, when he was a babyface, it was very much like him against the system and him trying to like overcome the odds and stuff like that. Uh, and I think the what you see the difference between, say, him and Ric Flair. Like you see people try to be Ric Flair or you see them try to be The Rock is that David Foster Wallace, for all his faults, which we will get into, is... I don't want to say genius. I don't like using that word. But I think he's someone who actually was an originator of if not a style then a presentation of a style that like you said he's very self-consciously difficult to read he's literally written essays about how pretentious he is so this is like not a revelation you couldn't get through that essay this grammar snit essay i, I, like... I literally <laughs> read it and then once i had finished reading the essay I started reading the essay again that, yeah, that's one of the ones I couldn't get through. I was like, man, I just disagree with you. Like, <laughs> and I, I think it's funny because like we've both read a lot of David Foster Wallace, but not to brag. <laughs> no, not to brag. Thank, thanks, Dave Roth. Yeah, not to brag. Dude. Yeah, <laughs> not to brag, but uh, um, no, I, I think with him, you look. He's one of the people you read and. You can go one of two, like you disagreed with him on the grammar thing. I saw it as a way to like understand language, but I kind of, I don't know. I'm not, how do I put this? I'm not well read enough to know what I'm being condescended to. Oh yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, he honestly, I will say that he didn't come off. He never comes off condescending. That's one of his 
talents, I think. Even in that one, I'm like... I feel like he does... Um, see, reading him now, I feel like he does actually come off as condescending in the sense that he... Well, my thing, if he starts condescending to me, I'm alive and you're not, bitch. Like, <laughs> But I guess then, I, I guess then my question would be uh, this. What about, and we're not going to get too into the weeds of David, our opinions of David Foster Wallace. Don't worry, this is going somewhere, I promise. Uh, <laughs> what about the grammar essay bothered you? Because I think that's an important way to look at his, the ways in which his style uh, manifests itself in a bunch of different people. It was, uh, long and, it was just long and boring and I wasn't, I was realizing that I didn't want to go where he was going and I gave up on it. It's a long essay. It's maybe 40 pages in that book. I mean, I gave up maybe like halfway. I got to re I should revisit it. I should revisit a lot about that book. Um, but I, I think with that essay, it's important because it, it creates a origin story for the way he writes so yeah i'll give you that i'll give you that it's probably essential yeah i think exactly i think it's like an essential part of the oeuvre of david foster wallace but at the same time it's something that is really difficult to recreate so when people try to write like david foster wallace there's this tendency to immediately recognize it because it comes from this almost manufactured place like you saw what how david foster wallace wrote and and i think there's a lot of people that fall into this even in their people i really like like uh chuck klosterman reminds me a lot of david foster wallace um I'm trying to think of who else um well i think like raw david Roth is like if wallace was more readable i think like you know, i mean he would probably cringe to hear us say that but to me i think you know that that's like an evolutionary wallace right there Wow. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if I disagree. I, I I don't disagree, but I think that it's and it's interesting because I think that this is weird because I know Roth very well, but uh he tied it to a much more accessible thing, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I again I think that comes naturally from knowing Roth as I do, which is pretty well. We work together on the classical. I've 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 I still keep in touch with him. Um that he has the kind of uh, he has a less um i'm trying to think of the word a less um arduous childhood that he thinks huh. he had does that make sense like i think I it, and yeah. i think that's kind of like yeah, if David Foster Wallace liked his parents, yeah, would exactly. <laughs> okay, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Um, but <laughs> I, on vacation to Maine every year, or whatever. Like. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think uh, within that there is this idea that you can, he evolved, like you said, he evolved, and Chuck Klosterman, I think, eventually did evolve. And I think the difference with Klosterman as opposed to um, is I don't think it's a readability; it's a um, lowering your with with Klosterman, I think the reason he was also able to bloom in a way that, like again, John Cena, like we mentioned, was able to bloom is when he found this. I can be, and, and I, obviously, this is what uh, Sex Drugs and Cocoa Puffs is about. Is he's taking a much more explicit tact towards a kind of low culture a analysis that 
Dave Foster Wallace isn't doing. And I think that a lot of that comes from uh, his academic background, specifically David Foster Wallace's, which I, I think Klosterman's like a political science major where Dave Foster Wallace was like a philosophy major and then he became a creative writing major. He he took a path of this like high-minded bullshit. Oh, basically. yeah, that's totally, that's totally true. You know, he was a... He was a snob. He believed himself to be a genius. He and he believed it's so fascinating because you think about this thing that he's trying to reconcile the good in all people, but he really did kind of and maybe he was, like believe that he was above most people. It, yeah, I think it's it's this idea that you are actually as good as people make you out to be, but at the same time uh, in terms of like the average opinion of David Foster Wallace, people who like him the least, people who like him the most, he actually like hits somewhere in the middle where it's like he's an incredibly talented writer who had a bunch of problems, which again we are going to get into uh, in, in a really interesting parallel that that I made. Uh, it's a little extreme, but I, I think you really brought out a really good idea <laughs> about him. Um, Were you not going there before I brought it up? No, I didn't. I didn't even think of that. Oh, I should have sprung it on you. Um, All right, people save it for later. Keep listening, folks. Uh, but also wasn't nearly as bad as people who didn't like him made him out to be. In that, allowed. Uh, sorry, um, I'm just trying to think. I just totally fucking lost where I was. Okay, so um, he from that um in that middle ground, but at the same time, people really admire him kind of turn it into this they think that they protect him in a way that is really troublesome but it also obscures real criticisms of his style right like and i think this is definitely something you see with uh brett hart is is somebody i think of who's a similar level genius i think to a david foster wallace but at the same time, as a lot of these ideas about himself and his place in the business and what his importance to the business is and what the importance to his style, the like what importance his style has to the business that create this vortex around him where you can't say, I don't feel bad for Bret Hart uh, getting screwed over in Montreal. It's, or I think he was wrong in the way he acted. Do you know what I'm saying? There's this inability to criticize people, uh, both for performance and non-performance related reasons, because there's this entire generation of people who became wrestlers and became wrestling fans because of this person. And this person then in many ways validates their existence. Like having them as this high-minded ideal of the the thing they should become and the thing that wrestling should be and it's platonic in the platonic sense becomes this shield they have to put around themselves to not feel bad about the fact that they, uh, like the guy that they built their career around or inspire them to build their career is not that great of a person. And I think that's something you see a lot in in wrestling but and and we're just going to come out and talk about chris benoit in a little bit but i think it also is something you see manifest in dangerous styles of wrestling too and taking things to the extreme and constantly wanting to be like let's say edge you know what i'm saying like wanting to constantly push things 
to a point because you had seen other people do it and become famous and not just famous, but beloved Mc, uh, seeing Mick Foley do crazy shit that it builds this idea of you having to live in a certain way and do a certain thing and write a certain way and live a certain way to be able to create the kind of art or the kind of business or whatever that that person created. It's this great man theory of, how to create the next great thing that I, I find insanely problematic, not just from like a, uh, like a perpetuating bad things throughout history sense, but also an edu- it's just impossibly boring. Like I want, uh, like, and I, I, we mentioned Roth earlier. I think Roth is, I don't want to say a much better writer. I think they're different writers, but his is accessible because he's talking about things that he understands very well but is telling you in a way that you can also understand what's going on in his brain when he's thinking about it but he's not talking about high art he's talking about sports where he's talking about how the president looks like a, a pastry filled with cream like he's not he's not trying to say something more profound about himself in a way that someone like foster wallace i think was and i think guys like the rock when you hear him talk about wrestling now he tries to make it into this like such a wonderful experience and we just like love making art and going out there. And it's like, no, dude, you were trying to get over and make as much money as possible. I watched you. Were you good at it? Absolutely. Did you do you love the business? Absolutely. But like you were not creating great art when you were making jokes about poontang pie. I'm sorry. You were having a good time with your buddies and making a bunch of money. That is an entirely valid way to deal like to live your life in the same way that I think if you read like a, a supposedly fun thing, I'll never do again by David Foster Wallace uh, by David Foster. In a, it's in the, the best way to find it is either online or in the book, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, which is a collection of essays of which this is the fine, the final one where he annoys the Porter for uh, his bags because he wants to get them earlier and he tries to play it off as not being an annoying twit i feel like but by playing it off as being understanding he knows he's being an annoying twit does that make sense like he tries to make it into this like i since i understand what i was doing is annoying and probably got that guy in trouble it's okay because i was trying to like I don't know. It's almost like he feels like it makes it okay for him to do certain things. Well, yeah. Here's what you got in the context of the thing he's of the story he's telling, because he's the type of person who does those things. No, why can't he do that? Well, I'll tell you why he could do that. Because he's the best there is. He's the best there ever was, and he's the best there ever will be. (laughs) And that way, he could do whatever he wants in his stories. He could be an asshole. He could change the the details. He could be, you know, when you're that good. You know, you make your own rules. <laughs> but that's, that's definitely the way he saw himself. I, th- I think that's clear. I agree. And that's why when you compare him to Bret Hart, I really thought that was uh, that was really spot on. Yeah, he they, they really, there's this real connection between these like self-put-upon torture geniuses 
who are actual mm-hmm. geniuses and actually tortured, but the important part is that they yeah. put it on themselves in a lot of ways. And that, to be clear, I'm not talking about David Foster Wallace's depression. What I'm talking no, about yeah. is his idea of his own greatness that exists in everything he writes. And I and, and it's framed in a way when you hear people, even when you hear people talk about the, and the rock is the other way in terms of like creating these narratives about himself. Cause like, if you read um, Hitman, the book that Bret Hart wrote, um, My Real Life in the Cartoon World of Wrestling, I believe is the full name. He really establishes himself as someone who just like cares about the business and all of this. But like, then you realize like, as he gets later on, like he tells stories and it's like, you clearly also care a lot about money and who's champion. And that's okay. But you have to accept that that's something you care about and own it. There's a lack of ownership, I feel like, that is like turned into this greater, more grandiose idea than just like, dude, you're kind of an asshole or no, you did stuff because you thought it was funny or no, you just really wanted to be champion because it helped your ego. There is this, because of their greatness, their palpable greatness in a lot of senses, when you read David Foster Wallace, it feels different than reading other stuff, especially the first couple of times you read it. When you watch Bret Hart match, it feels different than other matches. When you watch a rock promo, it feels different than other things in a way that's very easy to grasp and understand. Even if you don't like David Foster Wallace or Bret Hart or The Rock, you can very clearly see the ways in which their skills it, what their skills are, right? Like you can see that David Foster Wallace can write these really long, intricate sentences that tell specific stories in both succinct and really obtuse ways. And if that's not your thing, that's not your thing. But it's very clear when the Rock cut the promo. That's everybody. That's everybody's yeah. thing. <laughs> I I write very short sentences now. <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, I. Fuck you! Fuck you! We're not having this discussion. Uh, (laughs) But no, it's this definitely this this idea of like you having a very palpable style, and that becomes an easy thing to signify as great, right? It's, and I think that's why you have these character these these people who throughout history are problematic like i mentioned earlier chris benoit who we can't not we but the general we the supporters the people that still support him and to be clear i'm not comparing um bret hart and the rock to chris benoit but i think when you look at the shit david foster wallace did both in his writing from a journalistic standpoint but also just as a person the uh, ways in which he was abusive to women around him the ways in which he was a stalker to uh mary carr for a for months uh literally got her name his her name tattooed on him uh climbed to the into her house i believe he um threw her at it tried to throw her out of a moving car like he's threw a coffee table at her like there are these things and there's just the way in which he writes about things and tries to make himself out to be not who he really is. He was very unaccepting of himself. And, and I think that's kind of what makes him, at least when you think about him in, in, in retrospect as like 
a, like a tragic figure in a way that I don't necessarily think is the case with Chris Benoit, but I think there, the idea that there are still people who think Chris Benoit should be in the hall of fame is insane, but they exist because people, and this is not a new slash at all, have trouble separating art. I have trouble understanding that separating art from the artist only works if it's like, oh, they were kind of a jerk backstage. You know what I'm saying? It's not like, oh, if this person like raped children, you have to reevaluate the songs he wrote about children. I'm sorry. Like, that's just a rule I have. And there's there are ways in which you have to like look at a Chris Benoit match or look at the way in which David Foster Wallace talks about women in some of his stories, like the mom, um, the moms? The moms, yeah. The moms. Yeah, the the right the way he talks about the moms is this really sincerely evil character. You have to look at the ways in which their art informs the things they did in their lives. And if you look at Chris Benoit, he clearly on some level put his own body and by extension his ability to A provide for his family and B eventually like what he used to murder his family. The ways in which that dedication, what made him great, also made him problematic. And you can't separate those two things. And I think people want to treat guys like David Foster Wallace and and, and, and Chris Benoit as abstract. The things they did as abstractions as, as opposed and the people they hurt as abstractions as opposed to real things when we look at superfly jimmy snooker the fact that he murdered someone and was allowed to continue wrestling and be treated as a star for a very long time is like an irreparable stain on the wwe in a way that a lot of the stuff that david foster wallace did especially when he was younger are like an irreparable stain on his writing and i think that's something that like it's even weirder with wrestling because again, from what we talked about earlier, you're watching someone pretend to be someone else in a, in an intentional way. There's intentionality to the performance put on by Chris Benoit, but the ways in which like you have to accept that that means you didn't know the person, Mm, right? Like, and, and we read David Foster Wallace's books and we think we know the person because he's extremely open, but we don't. And I think that that's maybe the most hurtful is the wrong word, but the most emotionally damaging thing that you have when you have someone like Chris Benoit and like reading David Foster Wallace personally and investing a lot of emotional like uh, capital into his opinions on, not opinions on writing, but the, 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 the joy de vivre, the esprit de corps or joy de vivre he got from the idea of words was a really important thing for me. And now looking back, it is troublesome in the way that like, I can't bring myself, I haven't really read that much David Foster Wallace. And since basically I found out what he did in terms of like being a violent sociopath basically and it's it's something that really changed my ability to engage with his work and i don't really desire to read it anymore but i know that's not the case for a lot of people but like with, and the same thing with chris benoit is like i will watch old episodes of nitro and it, they're almost unwatchable because chris benoit is on them and at certain points woman is with him and it's really palpably uncomfortable to sit through because you were literally watching someone who murdered another person with the person he murdered and she's like screaming because they're fighting and you're like this is like 
without intending to be this really dark, dark, dark portal into like a world that I'm not able to like get past. And I feel like when you read Foster Wallace, the like obsessiveness of his writing, which is essentially what he was, he was obsessed with Mary Carr. The obsessiveness of his writing comes across in his real life in a way that feels almost exploitative to watch, or in this case, read. It's fat. I mean, it's fat, and it's just it almost feels like a betrayal, which is a way that I, I think Jonathan Franzen and 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 then and those crew had discussed kind of his his suicide ultimately that it it felt like a betrayal. Um, and I think people say that a lot, and and that's what I feel like with everything that comes out about Wallace. This is a betrayal, like you know, Infinite Jest was was fine, but Pale King, I, I read it at a at a really really a bad time in my life, and it really was good to to read those things and then you realize you know not good to read it because he 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 killed himself while he was doing that he didn't have anything figured out like and just like the way he he acts you know he comes off as this guy when he wrote infinite jest at such a young age like he he didn't have it figured out he was stalking a girl and throwing her out of a car window and showing up randomly like you know it, it it his whole thing was sincerity and it makes you question the sincerity in that way, it's very wrestling. Like, you know, was it all a work? What was it? I don't know. Yeah, and I don't know if you've. I, I have not seen the end of the road. In part, uh, the one I think it's him and it's it's uh, Jason Siegel and Jesse Eisenberg. I believe. Oh, I saw it, dude! I cried my eyes out when I saw it, but it was before I knew any of this. But stuff. I guess my question for me, the reason I didn't watch it, is not that I don't like movies, which is uh, the truth. But <laughs> it's that I like was uncomfortable with watching him being interpreted. And by a different person, he feels too, like I said, I don't know him, but like, I feel like because I've read so much of his shit, I do know him and I'm watching somebody play, not a friend, but someone in my, like, that I went to high school with, right? Like, it feels, for me, I, I it, and I, that's a weird feeling to like, it's not that I think I went to high school for David Foster Wallace, obviously. I went to school with Mark, who is not David Foster Wallace. He's a much... Well, Kyle, our friend Kyle is kind of like David Foster Wallace. <laughs> Actually, yeah, he's the one that told me I wrote like David Foster <laughs> Wallace, and I was like, that's very hurtful. He like introduced... I remember he was uh, uh, he was so upset when David Foster Wallace died, and I didn't even know who he was. Yeah, no, didn't you tell him? <laughs> no, that was, that was another one of our friends I raised. <laughs> emailed him. Forwarded him an email or something that said like... <laughs> David Foster Wallace died. This guy who meant so much to him. Like, what an asshole, dude. Like, I mean, you couldn't know. If you don't know, if you've never read Wallace, same way, like, you know, I, you know, Benoit was a wrestler's wrestler, right? Yeah. And Wallace was a writer's writer and a thinker's writer, and you really got invested in him. So, like, to me, when Benoit kills his family, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense because, you know, like, Vince McMahon blew up in a limo. Like, you know, I'm expecting this kind of stuff from wrestlers. But, you know, when Wallace, David Foster Wallace, this guy that wrote about mental health in such a way and his problems, and yeah, that's how I feel sometimes. And then, oh shit, yeah, he, but he's got it figured out. Like, oh shit, no, he didn't. Like, he didn't have it figured out. And even then, so selfish. I was read. I I hate to say this about a guy who struggled with mental health, but like, I'm reading about the end of his life and his wife taking care of him every day, and he can't get out of his house. And like, his wife, he had had a good day and. You know, he waited for his wife to not be home one day. He did it, and she comes home and finds him. And what a what a saint she seems like to to actually put together the 
book that he left. Could you imagine if the person you, I mean, I would do it. Like if the person I love left me a book and killed themselves and like left it on me to organize their life's work, I would do it. But I would be mad at them. <laughs> <laughs> no. And I think it's, it's something that it, you see it with the Benoit stuff of just like, you could have just killed yourself. You didn't have to kill your wife and your <laughs> Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think if Benoit ends his own life and doesn't do anything else involved with that, he can really, he would be interpreted different in a way that I feel like. Well, maybe in the way Wallace would have before this Me Too moment. Like, yeah, Wallace exactly. Was, Wallace was on his way to sainthood and Jason Siegel portraying him. There's going to be like a Muppetification that, you know, Jason Siegel brings this lovableness to anyone. And, and plus the, the We Are Water video. And stuff like there, there was going to be this David Foster Wallace sainthood thing that, like, you know, you know, they and then the people I guess who really knew him were like, wait, wait, we we gotta take back control of this narrative before there's a church built to date. <laughs> yeah, as and I say, he, I I say this as a guy who literally had a stained glass picture of David Foster Wallace as his Facebook profile picture for a little while. So Mark has. That's problematic. <laughs> this is before everything came out. Uh, well, I have a Chris Benoit tattoo, so. <laughs> Just the words, the rabid Wolverine, or do you actually have like a full picture of him? Yeah, it's just his face. <laughs> so creepy. Right. I don't even know where, I want to know where it is. Uh, uh, but yeah. It was before he did that stuff. I did it right after I read Infinite Jest when I was 12. Oh, I thought you said you had a Chris Benoit. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you were reading it while getting the tattoo, I assume. Yeah, both things. I was into like you know, I was always into the best things. You know, the best wrestler, the best writer, <laughs> uh, Roman Polanski, <laughs> Woody Allen, Jesse Lacey. All those are <laughs> very true statements about things you enjoy. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, I think that this is something that as more and more stuff comes out about everyone we really have to and this is definitely something wrestling can learn from and i guess this works both ways wrestling can completely erase or wwe i should say can completely erase you from the canon which is both good and bad right in terms of its ability to not show the stuff that is really truly troubling and problematic but at the same time it removes the edges of the world and makes them kind of this this narrativized world where the only things that happen are things that fit in these like narrative silos that like david foster wallace is a bad person or he's a great person that was misunderstood and went through some trouble there's not Like, that's even too generous, I think, for the people who are really like David Foster Wallace, or that's too uh, conciliatory, I should say. That's too conciliatory for the people who really love David Foster Wallace. Like, no, he's a saint. And I think that there's a lot of, and as, especially as there's these cultural and demographic shifts and uh, shifts about the way the world should work, there's going to be more and more of these people whether they be i don't think john cena but like i'm sure there's a wrestler or two that's going to come out they did terrible things while they were wrestlers or they were bad people and it's going to change a lot of the way that we interpret all the things they did but at the same time 
it's not going to change for some people because some people just want that release of uh, emotional connection, I guess, to a person that they can validate themselves through. So you're always going to find people who still think that like David Foster Wallace is uh, unimpeachable, uh, beyond reproach kind of person or writer even. And that's just not the case on any level. And the way that like people try to treat Chris Benoit as though he's still one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. And it's like, yeah, the things he did, the, that guy in that ring working those things, that like thing, that entity. Yes. That is like a great wrestling person, right? A, A great wrestler. But that person exists outside of that specific context. And you have to, when you're looking at it, accept all of these contexts. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. I mean, like you just said, like it's going to keep coming out and things are going to still be canceled. And I don't think David Foster Wallace should be removed from the canon. Like, I think maybe people want that and there's that's a valid argument in that. But like, I, I think he, his stories deserve to be told, but his story should also be told. We should not, we should never yes. not have this conversation when we're discussing David Foster Wallace. And I could tell you that, like, the Pale King literally got me out of bed at the lowest moment of my life when in the middle of it. I was like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah, that's right. But, and I can talk about that, but I have to also talk about who David Foster Wallace was. And that's the same thing with Chris Benoit. The WWE Network just pretending he's not there when you watch it is completely absurd. And it's like the same thing with Michael Jackson. Every time he comes on, I bring up, like, oh, man, it's fucked up what he did. People are like, why do you got to bring it up? Because I'm like, I don't want, I like Michael Jackson, but we can't not talk about what he did. You know, you can't sit here and enjoy it. You can't separate. I don't, I don't think you can separate art from artists. Uh, I, I don't know. Well, I mean, you can, but you have to talk no, they, about it. The, oh yeah, you can, you can say their art they created was great and not accept that it was worth, because that's the thing. I think that's the the reason you have to bring it up is because there's a cost to everything. And this is some, this is basically, I think the overall thesis of the show is that we as a culture have refused to accept responsibility for consequences that like involve liking David Foster Wallace involves, you knowing he was a piece of shit and that a lot of the sincerity that he projected was not sincere, at least in the sense that like he was not the, uh, saint that he i don't want to say saint but the things that he put up as real problems for him and your interaction with him were not the actual problems he was obfuscating the real issues yeah man and i think that that has to be part of the analysis if you're going to look at it meaningly through analysis and that if you're listening to michael jackson you have to accept that like the power that his music gave to him allowed him to sexually assault children and threaten their parents with retribution if they try to pull out of the situation because he was Michael fucking Jackson. And you listen to the music and you go, God damn, this is the best shit I've ever heard. You have to understand that that endorphin high comes at a cost and it's giving people power that are dangerous members of society that have been imbued with basic impunity because of the ways in which we put them on a pedestal that again, people literally tried to argue that Chris Benoit should be in the hall of fame. He murdered his wife and child. There's no getting past that. That was the cost of him being in the ring wrestling like that. 
and the cost to him and his quote-unquote legacy is that he's the guy that murdered his kid and his wife and he doesn't get to be in the hall of fame like those are the costs we all have to accept that the things we watch and the things that happen and the people that create them are people who exist in a world that have consequences because of the nature of like how life happens on earth Things happen, bad things happen, we have to address them and analyze and accept them and process them. But we also should, like you said, every time we have a serious discussion about David Foster Wallace, we have to talk about the person he was. Every time we talk about Michael Jackson, we have to talk about the things he did. And Chris Benoit, if we are watching a match, we have to process that the things he did in the ring are literally what contributed to the murder of two innocent people. Like, it's that level of you have to engage with what you're watching in a real way and not just see it as this escapist idea, which is, I think, what Foster Wallace was trying to push away from. Away from and the WWE Network is kind of feeding into is this idea that, oh, you can watch you can watch Chris Benoit whenever you want. We won't even put it in your search history. Like, you can just... Like, look him up in the pay-per-views and watch the pay-per-views. But at the same time, it's like, they don't say, like, hey, before you watch this, have you watched our 10-minute documentary on Chris Benoit and how he murders? Like, there has to be a weight with that. And I don't know how you address it, but you have to address it, in, at least in the sense of, like, it has to be a discussion we have when we watch Chris Benoit. Or it has to be something that is known when you're watching Chris Benoit that that thing led to this thing. So, so I think this kind of puts a nice like coda on it. You know, we're talking about Mary Carr and what, you know, how David Foster Wallace treated her. And I like, printed out this poem that she wrote about on the anniversary of his suicide. And when we're talking about canceling it and forgetting about it. And like, I just figured, you know, we've been we're talking so much about him. You know, let's, let, let's read something that she wrote, even though it's about him. So we're feeding it to everything. But she goes, this is how she wraps up this poem. She goes, I just wanted to say, ha ha, despite your best efforts, you are every second alive in a hard-gnawing way for all who breathed you deeply in. Each set of lungs, those rosy implanted wings, pink balloons, we sigh you out into air and watch you rise like rain. I feel like she's kind of saying, like, he thought when he died, all his sins would die with him. But no, we are still here talking about everything you did, good or bad, like exactly what we're doing right now. And, like, that's how he has to be reckoned with. Yeah. God, this is a really good fucking episode. Uh, yeah, man. When's the last time you had a poetry reading on it? <laughs> um, so did you have anything to plug? Now, now that we solved David Foster Wallace's legacy, um, I have a question I've been thinking about this entire time. What professional wrestler would make the best Don Gately? Uh, the, that's the attic guy that lives at uh, the house. Yeah. Hmm. Big beefy guy gets into the fight he's he's the one that meets with the spirit of uh house but he's a good he's kind of the the hero yes. of the the book in many ways yeah so who do you think would uh who do you who would be yours well what about like alistair black have you been following him the way he's like so like um he's sitting in a dark room kind of like atoning for everything he seems kind of like an ex-addict coming out he's big yeah no i think that's a great one i was thinking heidenreich but yours is uh, yeah i mean <laughs> i can feel that no yours yeah. is really great i think that they're and i and we were worried i think dave foster Wallace is a really great writer uh 
Oh yeah, I hope this doesn't come yeah. off as like he's not one of my favorite writers. It's just he's you know you, like what did I text you? Much to think about. <laughs> like you know, you don't want to you don't want to come off. Like, I mean, I don't know who's going to listen to this episode because you got to it's for a very specific audience. But like you gotta you gotta reckon with a lot with this guy and good and bad and the good is really good and the bad is really bad. Just like Chris. <laughs> Yeah, it's really it's it, he's very Canadian, David Foster Wallace, and his in his mannerisms and the way he lived his life. Midwest, he's Midwestern, I think, is what it yeah. is. That's why I like Thomas Pynchon more than David Foster Wallace. He's a Long Island guy, like he's a you know I think just a Long Island guy is more funnier and smarter than a Midwesterner. That that's my hottest take. <laughs> uh, so, did you have anything to plug this week? Yeah, buy my book um, so you can read it before I get canceled. It's called Kaboom, Kaboom 2. Um, and then you want to read these books before the writer gets canceled um, because Edward, you look like an, a weirdo reading on the bus. I haven't been canceled yet. so <laughs> It's because the episode hasn't come out. Uh, I know. I don't want to get canceled for hating David Foster Wallace. I like David Foster Wallace. Uh, you might get canceled for liking him. That's the problem. It's a tightrope we walk. Uh, oh, I know. And Benoit, you know, you can't talk about Chris Benoit, right? But we did for like 20 minutes. <laughs> I think that was cathartic. I, I thought so too. Um, you can check me out at the next one. That's T H E N one C K S D R. You can check us out at H W E T W pod on Twitter and H W E pod on Instagram. Uh, and you can rate review and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google play store, or check us out at how recently explains dot Uh, check out the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash H W E T W. What's wrong with genteelisms? Like prior to and subsequent to. Well, I have trouble parsing your question. Genteelism seems to me to be to be an overly charitable way to characterize them. They are to me those are, they're like puff words. They're like using utilize instead of use, which in ninety nine cases out of a hundred is just stupid. Or individual for person. More syllables is just puffed up. Uh, why not? Why say prior to rather than before? Everybody knows what before means. It's fewer words. Um, uh, and I think technically, given the Latin roots, um, it should be posterior to if you're going to use prior to. So if you're saying prior to and subsequent to, you were in fact in a very high level way messing up grammatically. But would you ever want to say posterior to? No. So you don't say prior to. But but you'll notice this is the this is the downside of starting to pay attention. You start noticing you know all the people who say at this time rather than now. Why did they just take up one third of a second of my lifetime making me parse at this time rather than just saying now to me? And you start being bugged. But you get to be more careful and attentive in your own writing, so you become an agent of light and goodness rather than the evil. Misinformed, must be I for you to fight your tongue secure.